we are um, coming to the end of the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew chapter 24 through 25. We are covering the last parable in the Olivet Discourse today, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Um, though, next week, we're going we're gonna to revisit the last line where Jesus sends the sheep to eternal life and the goats to eternal destruction. And we will uh, revisit hell next week, okay? Because we don't talk enough about it around here. Uh, but today, we want to take a look at the parable of the sheep and the goats. Debbie Tote got me that uh, picture of the goats. So if we could have uh, all the goats over here on this side. <laughs> here we go, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now let me pause right here and point out that while this is the parable of the sheep and the goats, the parable hasn't started yet. Actually, he, he mentions that he'll separate them like sheep and goats. Now, that's the start of the parable, but verse 31 and 32 is actual life. And what it says is that Jesus is going to return to this earth in glory, not with a few angels, but with all the angels. And there are hundreds of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of angels. So imagine the skies filled with glorious angels. Jesus descends from heaven, his foot touches down on the Mount of Olives, he is sitting on the Mount of Olives as he delivers this, and he will return to the Mount of Olives, we're told. And then, if you read some of the Old Testament prophets, there's going to be a splitting of the earth. And everybody in the world will be gathered before him. That's not parable. That's not story. That's real life. So that's what's going to happen. Now, he gets into the analogy. You go into one pile or the other. There's only two options here. Sheep or goats. You're one or the other. Okay? And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brothers, one of the least of these, my brothers, we're going to come back and look at that. You did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, 
Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then I will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Two piles, sheep, goats, two destinations, eternal life, eternal punishment. That's it. Okay. Now, if you have been around here for any length of time, you know that we believe the Bible teaches that you are saved by faith alone. Right? What's the five solas of the Reformation? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the authority of Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. You are not saved by works. You are not saved by anything you do. You are saved by what Jesus did for you. He died in your place. He lived a perfect life in your place. How do you get what Jesus did? You trust him. You place your faith in him. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, having said that, we read this parable, and he says, sheep, you're sheep because you fed and clothed and ministered to the least of these brothers of mine. It sure seems like judgment by works. How do you synthesize justification by faith alone with judgment by works. In fact, I'm going to give you a three-point message today. First, we're going to talk about the fact that justification is by faith alone, not by works. Right? In fact, we have to establish that point to then move to the second point. The second point is judgment is according to works. And you go, wait a minute. Justification by faith alone, judgment according to works, those are not contradictions. Those fit together. We talk about how that works. Right? And then the third point I want us to see is that judgment is according to certain kinds of works in this particular passage. All right? So justification is by faith alone. Judgment is according to works, and judgment is according to certain works at least in this passage. So let's first of all establish the truth that justification is by faith alone, not by anything you do. Now, when we talk about justification, what are we talking about? Well, God's perfect. He can only admit perfect people into heaven. We are all disqualified because we've all sinned and rebelled against him. So, for him to declare us perfect, we need perfect righteousness. 
And that's where Jesus came, comes in. He died to pay for our sin. He lived a perfect life. In other words, he's our substitute. And when we trust in him, we get everything he is. So God can declare you perfect. So justification, the definition of justification is God declaring you perfect. Justification is by faith alone because once you add your works and your efforts to it, your works are tainted. They're sinful. Even your best works smell like filthy rags. So Jesus provides all the perfection and all the righteousness you need. You trust in him and he declares you perfect. Not because you're perfect, but because he's perfect, okay? So, um, now we want to ask the question, and people go, oh, I can't figure out what the Bible says. Are you justified by faith alone or faith plus works? How, it's not that hard, folks. Let's take a look at some scriptures. Here in Galatians 2.16, Paul begins by saying, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one that was originally preached, let him be accursed. So the stakes are high. You better get the gospel right or you're going to hell. So then, Paul goes further, and he explains the gospel in the book of Galatians. And in Galatians 2.16, he sums up the essence of the issue here. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith. That's one, through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. That's two. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Could it be any clearer? Three times in one verse, you are justified by faith, not by works of the law. Now, the other side of the debate would say, well, that doesn't teach justification by faith alone. You go, what? In fact, if, if this was not a sermon, it was a classroom, I'd break us into groups and I would say, if you believed that salvation was by faith and works, what would you do with that verse? How would you make that say that you're not saved by faith alone? Here's what they do. They say that works of the law, it's not just works, but it's works of the law, that's only ruling out certain kinds of works, namely Jewish ceremonial law. Remember the Galatians said, you, you Gentiles, you need to be circumcised and you need to keep the food laws. So, all this is saying is, you're not justified by keeping Jewish laws. You're justified by faith in Christ and, of course, keeping Christian laws. Is what the other side would say. Now, um, the question is, are works of the law referring to all kinds of works or just Jewish ceremonial law? Well, let's take a look at another passage where Paul talks about the distinction between faith and works. And that would be Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Now, just because we've covered this a million times, please don't tune out. Because we're going to zero in on something very specific here that you may not have noticed before. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, 
not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, I want you to notice in Ephesians, it does not say works of the law. It says you're saved by faith, not by works, period. Okay? You want to keep your health insurance, you want to keep it, period. <laughs> period here means period. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Now, what would the opposite side say? They would say, oh, but Paul means works of the law. You have to imply that he means works of the law. Now, should you read works of the law into the word works? Well, when in doubt, read the context. Does the word works appear anywhere else in the context? Yes, in verse 10. And clearly, in verse 10, it is not referring to Jewish works. It's referring to any kind of good works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for, not works of the law, but for good works. This verse defines the word here, not Galatians 2.16. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, put it all together. You are not saved by Jewish works or any kind of works. You're saved by faith alone. Now, somebody says, is there any verse that just comes right up, right up and says, you are not saved by any kind of works? Yes. In Titus 3.15, the works in question there are clearly not Jewish ceremonial works, but they're good works, or works of righteousness. See, some people would say, you're not saved by works of the law, but you are saved by faith and works of righteousness. In Titus, Paul says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not saved by any kind of works, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, um, so... Verse after verse after verse. You are not saved by works. You're saved by faith and faith alone. Now, if we were to have a debate between Martin Luther and the Pope, here's what the Pope would say. Mr. Luther, what about James 2.24? James 2.24 defeats the Protestant idea that you are justified by faith alone because it tells us that you're not justified by faith alone, but by your works. Now, if I had a Bible college, you know, St. Bride's, <laughs> before you could graduate, here's what your essay question would be that you have to get right. How would you reconcile Romans 3.28 with James 2.24? Go. You can't get out of here unless you can. It's amazing how many pastors and teachers and theologians can't do this. This is the foundation of the gospel. If you can't do this, you shouldn't be in the pulpit. You shouldn't be teaching a Bible school. And you certainly aren't going to graduate from St. Bride's. So here's uh, Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Could it be any clearer that you are saved by faith alone, not by works? Right? Compare that to 
James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What in the world are we supposed to do with that? Okay, you're dismissed. Have a good Sunday. <laughs> How do you reconcile Romans 3.28 with James 2.24? Well, and again, if we were in a classroom, I'd break this up, and we would, we've would we done this at Moody where, you know, we let the kids brainstorm, and for a whole hour, you know, guess, could it be this, could it be that, what do we do, and, you know, many of them have become Roman Catholic in my class. <laughs> so, <laughs> what do we do with James 2.24? Now, here's the deal. Whenever a verse appears to contradict another verse, you have to say it can't contradict because it's inspired by the same Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's God. God don't make no mistakes. It can't contradict. So an option here is you have to say this. Words don't always mean the same thing in different contexts. Right? Words have, just as in an English dictionary, the word bear can mean a grizzly in the woods. Or a guy in the front row. A bear. Yeah. Um, the word justified. When Paul uses it, virtually all the time Paul uses it, he uses it to mean declared right by God. Doesn't ever mean something different, though. So here's where you do your little word study. You get your e-sword on the computer or your blue-letter Bible on the computer, and you figure out how to do a word study on the word justified. And it's got Strong's Concordance numbers on there. You right-click it, and you, know, you, you do all that stuff. I'll teach you how to do it if you want to know. Okay. And, you, and you look at every occurrence of the word justified, and you ask, does it ever mean something other than declared right by God? And you find this... Uh, this verse in Matthew eleven nineteen, where Jesus is comparing himself to John the Baptist. And in Matthew eleven nineteen, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. And he's saying you can't win. John the Baptist, he's ascetic, and he eats grasshoppers and bugs and honey. He wears leather, rough clothes. And they say, oh, he's, a, he's a demonic force. Look at that guy. So Jesus, he comes, and he does eat normal food, and he goes to banquets, and yes, he drinks wine once. Um, and they accuse him of being a glutton and a sinner. And this is what he says. He says, yet wisdom is justified by your deeds. What does that mean? Look at a person who claims to be wise. Their life demonstrates whether they're wise or not. You know, St. Forrest Gump once said, stupid is as stupid does, right? This is saying, wisdom is justified by our deeds. Look at a person's life, and their, their deeds justify, prove to onlookers whether they're wise or not. So here, justified, it's the same word, can't mean declared right before God. It has to mean demonstrated to be right before people. So, Paul uses it to mean declared right by God. Jesus uses it to mean demonstrated to be right before people or shown to be right. Now, you go back to James and you ask, what's the context of James? 
is it being declared right before God, or is the context talking about demonstrating something before people? James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Here we have another case where the word faith can be used two different ways. There's a saving faith and a non-saving faith. Same word. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? Isn't this exactly what we're talking about with the sheep and the goats? The sheep took care of the brother who needed some, some food and clothes. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now here's the issue. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Is the context here being declared right before God or demonstrating to the watching world that your faith is real? Well, clearly, that's the context. So, James uses the word justified the way Jesus, his brother, uses the word justified, demonstrated to be right before people. So, put it, put it together, you're justified by faith alone. You're declared right before God by faith alone, not by works. You demonstrate that you're a Christian and that you have faith and that you're justified before people, though. By your works. Right. So, point number one justification is by faith alone, not by works. Now, let's go on to number two. Judgment is according to works. On Judgment Day, guess what? Your life will be analyzed. Great white throne judgment, Revelation 2012. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Judgment is according to what they had done. Judgment is according to works. Why is that not a contradiction? Well, the place of our works at the judgment is not that they serve as the basis of our justification before God, but they are corroborating evidence that we have faith in Christ. Works are not the basis of our justification, but they are the evidence that we're justified. Huge difference between works being the basis of your salvation versus works being the evidence of your salvation. Let's put it this way. Let's say a patient is ready to die and they go in for a heart transplant. After the operation, the doctor examines the patient, and the patient is released because the vital signs have improved. 
They were saved by the transplant alone. But the judgment upon whether they should leave or not is based on the result, these vital signs. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works. But if you're truly saved, your vitals will improve. And on judgment day, the, the, the works will cooperate that you're truly saved. Okay? So, when we look at some judgment passages, like 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, it says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. You claim to be a Christian, you're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're, you're deceived. You can't live that kind of lifestyle and have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You may call yourself a Christian, but you're going to hell, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's what that says. Well, who else? Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. You're working with somebody? Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Now we're quick to point out the sexual sin. What about this one? The greedy. Nor drunkards, nor revilers. Other people like to argue all the time. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, so you're saved by not doing these things. No. You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but don't think you're saved if this is the condition of your life. This is the evidence that you're not saved. Not the basis upon which you get saved. It's the evidence that you either are or aren't saved. Likewise, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, it's not the profession of faith that will be looked at. What will be looked at? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Oh, this is salvation by works. No, it is salvation by faith in the Lord. Well, how, how do we know that it's true salvation? Because you'll do the will of the Father. Oh, you won't do it perfectly, but there better be a difference between you and the non-Christian. Right? So, Justification is by faith alone, not by works. Judgment is according to works as cooperating evidence. So now, point three. Judgment is according to certain works in this particular passage. Now, this passage has led to all kinds of wacky theology. And let's go back to basic hermeneutical, hermeneutical, hermeneutical <laughs> interpretive principle from St. Bride's College of the Bible. Okay? Um, you form your doctrine on doctrinal passages. In other words, on passages that outright teach about justification. And you supplement your doctrine with parables. If you start with a parable, you can read anything you want into a parable. So, Parables supplement doctrine. You don't start there. Okay. So some people have read this passage and they've said, oh, the sheep are surprised that they're, that they're sheep. They're welcomed into heaven and, and uh, they go, 
I didn't know. You know, this is a surprise. So some people have concluded that there's such a thing as Christians who don't even know they're Christians. In other words, they're kind to the poor. They, they act more Christian than some Christians, therefore they must be Christians, even though they don't know they're Christians. Because they're surprised by judgment. Is that what this is teaching? No. Here's the question. What are they surprised about? They're not surprised that they're in the sheep pile. What they're surprised about is that Jesus says... It was him who they fed and clothed and visited. Right? The surprise isn't that they're saved. The surprise is that Jesus seems to be equating taking care of the least of these brothers with taking care of him. Okay? So, here's the surprise. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers, and we're going to come back to that, of mine you did for me. So, misconception one. Don't think this is teaching that you become a Christian even though you don't know it by your works. The surprise has nothing to do with what aisle you're in. The surprise is that Jesus equates himself with the least of these brothers. Now, another question. Who are the least of these brothers? Now, um, Virtually everybody assumes that the least of these brothers are, are the poor, those in prison, those who are down and outers in the world. Be kind to the poor, visit those in prison, take care of the down and outers, and you are serving Jesus. Now, that's not who, the, that's not who they are in this passage. Jesus never calls unbelievers brothers. This is not a general passage talking about the general poor, those who are generally in prison. These are Christians. Okay? Now, having said that, does that mean we shouldn't visit the poor or uh, visit those in prison and have compassion on the poor? No. Doesn't mean that. Okay? It's just don't use this passage to justify social action. To everybody. This is talking about a smaller group of people, the down and outers amongst Christians. Okay? By the way, and I was going to get into this, I won't, I, I, I won't but uh, you want to know a great book on what is the Christian's responsibility when it comes to social action. The, the term today is social justice. Great book to read by Kevin DeYoung called What is the Mission of the Church? He's concerned that with the emergent church and uh, with a lot of movements today, the church is losing its mission. And we're turning the mission of the church into social action. And he calls us back to, you know what the mission of the church is? Well, Jesus said this. Make disciples. That's the mission of the church. Well, does that mean we shouldn't care about the poor? No. He, he does a very balanced view that we should care about the poor. Okay. But let's not care about the poor, feed them, clothe them, and send them off to hell. The mission is still make disciples. But he does a great job of bringing back into balance. So if you want to know, hey, Pastor Brian, what's your view of philosophy of, of the mix between 
uh, making disciples and reaching the lost and, and feeding the poor. I would start with this book. In fact, today, the elders, we're going to spend some time in prayer. Um, you know, we've, we've got missions. Our missionaries are changing, and we want to choose some new missionaries. Um, I think this is a great foundational book. Here, read that before tonight. <laughs> so if, if any of you uh, are wondering, what, where are you coming from when it comes to this balance? I would start with Kevin DeYoung's book. And, and by the way, um, when it comes to the poor and the needy, Philippines was hit with a typhoon. There are 10 to 12,000 dead bodies floating around that island right now. Okay. Um, I think we should help. So how do you, how do, you do that? We've got to call a committee meeting. No, let's, if you want to give to that, we'll have a basket on the way out here. And write a check just in the margin put Philippines. Now I couldn't spell Philippines. How do you, how do you spell that? A rock where are you? P H I. Just a bunch of P's and I's. Right? And our denomination, we do have a denomination, has like a fund that gets the money uh, through an organization and they don't put it in the pocket, they actually get it to help people. But if you would like to give to that, and if the Lord is speaking to you, don't go, yeah, I should do that and forget about it. Just put your checkbook on your lap now or something. But we'll, uh, Pete, where are you at? Just get a, get a basket and um, if you would like to give to that. So, so we should not ignore the poor. We should have the Elburn Food Pantry. You should work there and you should feed the poor, okay? That's not what this passage is talking about. Who are the least of these brothers? Christians, your brothers and sisters amongst you, who need your compassion. You know, Jesus uh, meets the Apostle Paul. Paul is Saul. He's killing Christians. Jesus knocks him off his horse if he was on a horse. And so he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, asked Saul. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wait a minute. Did Saul ever persecute Jesus Christ personally? No. But Jesus is saying, the way you treat my brothers and sisters, Christians, the way you treat me. So, what this is saying is an infallible test of salvation. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you show compassion and meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ? And here's the challenge especially for comfortable American Christians. We Christians can be just as clicky in our churches as the world is clicky in the world. Well, I like so-and-so, and I like so-and-so, but I can't stand so-and-so, so I'm going to hang out with so-and-so and, -so and uh, kind of snub the others, talk about them behind their back, be sarcastic, 
then you're no different than the rest of the world. Let me ask you this. What's more glorifying to God? A church, or let's even make it small, a small group made up of everybody exactly alike, same life stage, kids are all the same age, same socioeconomic status, same personality type. What is more glorifying to God? A group of believers that has a bunch of stuff in common and they all like one another, or a church or a small group made up of people of different races, different personality, different socioeconomic status, and they go, you know what, in spite of the things that would separate us in the world, we are going to love each other anyways. So many people do this. you got church day. It's really not feeding people spiritually. Oh, they're not totally liberal, but they're just kind of touchy-feely, tickle-your-ears church. But there's people in that church that are just like you. Same socioeconomic class. They get you, you get them. Church B, solid Bible teaching church, full of people who love the Lord, but the people are really different than you. So many people choose church A because it's just more comfortable to hang with people who are like you and who like you and whom you are like. What's more glorifying to God? Church of diverse, different people who love each other anyways? Or a bunch of people who find it easy to love each other? And it may not be a Bible-based church, but I really like so-and-so. We have the same hobbies, the same interests. That's, that's so easy. It doesn't take any supernatural ability. Okay. Let me close, and I am going to close, with this, and I love this. This is Philip Yancey. If, if you're looking for, like, a great literary, modern literary masterpiece, what's so amazing about grace by Yancey talks about the fact that he, he used to live in Chicago here, and there was a little uh, church in the inner city that he and his wife attended. And he used to help with communion. I think he was an elder. He was an elder or a deacon or a janitor. I don't know what he was. But he says this, Those who desired to partake of communion would come to the front, stand quietly in a semicircle, and wait for us to bring the elements. The body of Christ broken for you. I would say, as I held out a loaf of bread for the person before me to break off, the blood of Christ shed for you, the pastor behind me would say, holding out the common cup. Because my wife worked for the church and because I taught a class there for many years, I knew the stories of some of the people standing before me. I knew that Mabel 
the woman with strawy hair and a bent posture who came to the senior citizen center had been a prostitute. My wife worked with her for seven years before Mabel confessed the dark secret buried deep within. Fifty years ago, she had sold her only child, a daughter. Her family had rejected her long before. The pregnancy had eliminated her source of income, and she knew she'd make a terrible mother, so she sold the baby. She could never forgive herself. Now she was standing at the communion rail. Spots of rouge like paper disc pasted on her cheeks. Her hands outstretched, waiting to receive the gift of grace. The body of Christ broken for you, Mabel. Beside Mabel were Gus and Mildred, star players in the only wedding ceremony ever performed amongst the church's seniors. They lost $150 a month in Social Security benefits by marrying rather than living together, but Gus insisted. He said Mildred was the, was the light of his life, and he didn't care if he lived in poverty as long as she lived with him by his side. The blood of Christ shed for you, Gus, and for you, Mildred. Next came Adolphus. He was an angry young black man whose worst fears about the human race had been confirmed in Vietnam. Adolphus scared people away from our church. Once in a class I was teaching on the book of Joshua, Adolphus raised his hand and pronounced, I wish I had an M16 rifle right now. I'd kill all you white honkies in the room. <laughs> an elder in the church, who was a doctor, took him aside afterwards and talked with him, insisting that he take his meds before service on Sunday. The church put up with Adolphus because we knew he came not merely out of anger, but out of if he missed the bus and no one offered him a ride, sometimes he would walk five miles to get to church. The body of Christ broken for you, Adolphus. I smiled at Christina and Reiner, an elegant German couple employed at the University of Chicago. Both were PhDs. So you got Adolphus and you got the PhDs teaching at the University of Chicago. They came from the same pietist community in southern Germany. They told us about the worldwide impact of the Moravian movement, which still influenced their church back home. But right now, they were struggling with the very message they had heard. So the Moravians are all about raising up missionaries and sending them out to the forest. And they were proud of that, but they had a problem. Their son had just left on a mission trip to India. He planned to live for a year in the worst slum in Calcutta. But now that it was their son, everything looked different. They feared for his health and safety. Christina held her face in her hands and tears dribbled through her fingers. The blood of Christ shed for you, Christina, and for you, Reiner. Then came Sarah, a turban covering her bare head, scarred from where the doctors had removed the brain tumor. And Michael, who stuttered so badly he would physically cringe whenever anyone would address him. And Maria, the wild, overweight Italian woman who had just married for the fourth time, this one will be different. The body of Christ. So, let's not neglect the poor, let's not forget about the Philippines. Let's write our text. But what about the people sitting next to you? 
What about the people, the Christians, who just aren't quite on your socioeconomic level? And that goes both ways. Sometimes those more well-off can look down on those less well-off, and sometimes those less well-off can look at the snobs above them. What about personality differences? Extroverts and introverts don't really get along, but you gotta love them. And what about those who need your help? Could be financial, could be just a hug. What do you need to do to make sure you're in the sheep pile, not the goat pile? And by the way, let me just end with, I know this is my second time ending. Um, you know, my son Caleb, he pretty much listens to sermons all day long. He's homeschooled, one of those. And he told me this, he goes, you know, I was listening to, I think it was Paul Washer, one of his radical. And um, the preacher was lambasting the church for being clicky and not loving one another. And the, the preacher said, is there any church that actually lives this out? And Caleb turned it off. He goes, I'm not saying Valleyford's perfect. We got all kinds of mutts right? <laughs> from all kinds of groups. And uh, people are there for you. Great church. Sometimes we just need to be reminded and encouraged. Keep being a great church. Full of sheep, not goats, that loves women. Lord, thank you that your blood covers all kinds of different people. Thank you that your Holy Spirit melts down the barriers. Those barriers in the world separate people, but in the church, those barriers come down and people who are very, very different from one another love one another. Lord, I pray you would continue to do your work of melting hearts, breaking down walls, so people look at a church like this and they say they must be true disciples. Something is different about that group of people. Thank you, Lord, that we are justified by faith alone, not anything we do, or we'd all be sunk. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for your righteousness. And thank you, Lord that you don't just do an accounting trick on the books in heaven, but you change our hearts. So on Judgment Day, there's evidence pointing to the reality that you have changed us. Jesus, receive all the glory. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.